The Title Block, Episode 6, Set Designer Sean Kerwin, Part 2. Welcome back to The Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and today, after a bit of a pause for life and work, let me present part two of my discussion with set designer Sean Kerwin. Here we continue our talk about Sean's time at the Stratford Festival, her travails at trying to apprentice at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, and we have a broad discussion about her process and the life in the theatre. I'm continuing to talk to Canadian designers, and I had a great conversation with designer Alan Stitchbury from Victoria last night, so that will be coming up in the feed over the next month. And I have had uh, more news about future episodes. I'm working with lighting designer Scott Spadell on recording a panel discussion about the future of theatre design and the place of projections in the theatre. Uh, we're still working on that uh, kind of format for that uh, discussion, but it's going to be happening at the upcoming Canadian Institute for Theatre Technology Conference in Ottawa. The conference runs from August 14th to 16th, and check out the show notes for details uh, about that conference, and join us in Ottawa to talk about theatre tech and design. You can find the show notes at thetitleblock.com forward slash episodes. But now here's my chat with Sean Kerwin. I began by asking her about how she made it to the Stratford Festival and her work with the great Canadian designer Desmond Healy. All right. So, let's go back to Stratford then. You went to Stratford in the early, you said 82, is that right? No, the first time I went was 78. Okay. And then 81, 83, 85, 86. Right. And you eventually, you did assist, it says here, John Ferguson mm-hmm. uh, in 81, but you eventually were, were assistant to Desmond Healy. How did you guys mm-hmm. first meet and how did that, how did that start? Um, I assisted, in 81, I was assisting Desmond and John. Um, but uh, getting to assist with Desmond, well, so here's the story. In 1978, my first summer at Stratford, I had no experience being in a big institutional organization. I was used to small theaters where everybody really worked collaboratively, and I had the worst summer of my life. I, I, I was really young. I was doing shows that I couldn't understand were less important than the photo call for the main stage shows. Uh, so I just didn't really have the experience to know how to, how to really exist in that kind of, uh, large infrastructure. Uh, and because I was having the worst summer of my life, I thought I have to do something to salvage this summer. And I, looked around and I thought, what can I do to learn as much as I can while I'm here, while I'm being so miserable? And I looked at all the other designers and Desmond's, Desmond was someone who I just did not get at all. I didn't understand his drawings. I didn't understand the way he worked. And, uh, so I decided that that's who I should find out about. 
I didn't know that he was this really highly regarded international designer. I just knew he was this guy who did these drawings that were funny looking and smudgy and, you know, he cut up stuff. And he was doing Titus Andronicus with Len Cariou. And one of the things they were doing was building all this armor. And a lot of the armor was being built uh, by building up textures and layers of all kinds of things onto the armor. And so uh, because I had a bit of time on my hands, because my own shows with the $500 budgets were relatively small, uh, pretty small, that's an understatement. Um, I decided to, I said to him, is there anything I can do to help you? I'll volunteer. And uh, he put me downstairs in the basement working in the lower level with other people who were, we were chopping up plastic fruit. We were chopping up plastic fruit that could then be hot glued onto the basis for the armor to then be overpainted. And this was total, this was so far beyond my understanding because I, I was much more comfortable in a kind of a new play royal court you know, design aesthetic of real stuff. Um, so I, I started chopping plastic fruit in half and because I didn't really understand the kind of couturier level of work at Stratford at that time in terms of craftsmanship, which was phenomenal. I thought the goal was to do it as fast as possible. So I set up this kind of production line with my plastic grapes and, uh, I, I had this really good system worked out where I could really chop grapes in half really fast and other people were chopping them perfectly in half, whereas I was just kind of bashing through them. And I, I had no way of knowing that in fact, Desmond really related to the way I thought about that. You know, I mean, he, he, they didn't have to be perfect and I wasn't at all precious about them, but I was really good anyway. So, uh, one way or another, we had a couple of conversations, I think, about, you know, what I wanted to do and that I would come and help him. And I think because he recognized that I was really good at chopping plastic grapes in half, uh, in 1981, when I went back, because 79 and 80, I was working at the Muskoka Summer theater up in Gravenhurst, um, doing summer stock. So when I went back in 81, partially that was because I had been trying to get to the Metropolitan Opera in New York. That's a whole other story. Uh, but I ended up assisting Desmond and Susan Benson was the head of design at that point. And Susan, uh, was really great. I think she was probably the one, I think she contacted me and asked if I was interested in coming and working at Stratford, uh, to assist Desmond. So I think that's, that's how that started. And, um, but I think it was really the plastic grapes that did it. And he and I have talked about that numerous times over the years of, you know, how that was the bond in a way that, got our friendship started and how important i mean this is our long tradition of mentorship in the theater as far as your tra as far as training a theater artist goes how important this may seem like a dumb question but how important is assisting 
other designers. Everyone wants to go out there and do their own thing, but how how does that help shape and a young designer? What do you learn from that kind well, of process? I, I think, I mean, to me personally, I started out in poor theater. I started out working under appalling conditions, um, but I also had this sense that it was important to know how the biggest places worked. And I think when I decided that I wanted to try to go to New York and spend time working with a large opera company, it was because I wanted to work as an assistant in a place that was so big that I would then be able to understand it so it wouldn't be able, so it wouldn't intimidate me. And again, this was because at my core, I had no confidence. Uh, But I thought if I know how the biggest big works, I know how the small works. So if I think, to kind of get back to your question, I I always want people to know the whole, the range. What's the biggest big? What's the smallest small? How you then fit yourself within the, that has to do with the kind of work you're interested in doing. And so for me, uh, partially, when I was in England, after I finished Percy's course, I did assist uh, other designers over there. I assisted... Um, uh, Alex Stone, who was a wonderful designer, and Carl Toms, who had assisted Cecil Beaton. So, you know, there to me, that idea that you worked with people who'd been doing it a long time was really fabulous. Uh, and I think that part where you just go back and forth, you do your own work, you go work, and you know, you, you work for people who know way more than you do. You go do your own work, you go back and forth. And So I think uh, in the ideal world, I think assisting is really important, but, but I think it's important to assist people who, who will stretch you. So for instance, when I kind of was having my worst summer in my life at Stratford the first time, going to look at Desmond's work and trying to see if I could somehow help him was precisely because I didn't understand, I didn't understand what he did at all. And so I wanted to learn uh, something that would take me as far away as possible from what I already understood. And And I do think sometimes, you know, now when I see people looking for positions to mentor, uh, to get mentorship, I sometimes wish they would be bolder in where they would look. Because if you're familiar with somebody and the way they work and what they do, then they're not necessarily going to stretch you. It's when you can go into a world you know nothing about that you really stretch a lot. And to me, all the designers that I assisted uh, were people who had considerably more experience than I did and had considerably, had a very broad range of styles and work ethics and all of that. Right. And so how did David Repa stretch you at the Metropolitan? Well, did, first off, how did uh, you get there? being able to be, well, I, I decided I wanted to go learn about how big scenery was made and big opera stages. Cause I loved, I, when I was at the English National Opera, I fell in love with opera inadvertently. I had no interest in it when I got there. By the time I left, I had fallen in love with it. And that was purely from being down the hall from the rehearsal hall and hearing singers all day. 
and realizing that it was very quiet when there was no music in the background and no singers wandering around. And so I wanted to learn about big opera. I thought because I'd spent time in England, I should do it someplace that wasn't England. Um, I wanted to go to a big opera house and, uh, I didn't speak Italian. So I thought, well, okay, I'll look to the States. And I looked at, I got in touch with Santa Fe, the um, New York City Opera and the Met. And then I set about trying to convince them to let me come and spend a year as a, as a volunteer, essentially. Um, the Met, I went down to New York at one point and I went to meet the people at New York City Opera. They were very nice and they were kind of interested in saying, yes, we could let you kind of, we could find a space for you in the wardrobe. And my whole goal was to say to them, I'm going to make this really easy for you. I will, I will get my own funding. I just want to be the fly on the wall to watch how things unfold. And, um, the New York City Opera also gave me ticket to a matinee performance that I went to, but when I went to it, the walls wobbled on the flats, and I thought, when a door closed, I thought, I don't want to be there. I want to be at the mat. And um, the mat, I'd originally written David Reppa, who was the resident designer at that point, never heard anything back. Um, I got, I was a bit persistent, I guess. And then he finally sort of said, okay, well, come and I'll, you know, meet you. And so come at 9.30 on the morning of whatever. And I turned up at 9.30 and I waited until 4.30 in the afternoon to talk to him because he was busy. He got held, they were, you know, they were in the middle actually of uh, teching Manon Lescaut, which was a production that Desmond had designed. But this was before I got to know Desmond well. Anyway, David uh, finally met me that afternoon, and I showed him my portfolio, and he said to me, so you'd like to become a designer, which just totally shattered me because I thought I'd been doing it already. But, you know, I mean, it's all relative. And then he said, well, go and talk to Tony Bliss, who was the general manager. And so it became like the two parents kind of going, well, if they say it's okay, it's okay with me. And so Tony Bliss said, well, if it's okay with David, it's okay with me. David said, if it's okay with Tony, it's okay with me. So I kind of managed to convince them to let me spend a year. And then I had to go about realizing it and, uh, so the year became about how many things could fall apart in how many different ways. And, uh, so terrible things started happening. I was saving up all my money. I applied to the Canada council. I didn't get a grant. I even had a letter from the Met. I thought, how can you turn down? Like, how can you say no to this? But anyway, it was turned down. So then I thought, okay, well, I've made this opportunity. I've got to figure out how to get there still. Um, I started saving all my money very carefully. I was living really frugally. Someone started forging my signature and stealing money out of my bank account. Uh, you know, things just kept happening and kept going wrong. And also, uh, I started having dreams that I would get to New York and I was going to start the job, but I couldn't get off the subway or I'd get to New York. I had an apartment lined up on the Upper East Side that I was going to take care of for 250 bucks a month. And I thought, I have an apartment lined up in New York. This is like, this is all great. That's all you need to do. Anyway, uh, 
over months, things kept going wrong, and I kept having dreams that kept getting more and more vivid about getting to New York and not starting the job. And one of the most vivid ones was that I was getting to New York. Uh, I was going to a matinee performance. I was going to start working after the matinee performance. And the matinee performance special guest was going to be Edward Koch, the mayor at that point. Well, he never turned up. So the matinee never happened. So I never got through the matinee. So I never got to start the job. So all of these dreams, they were like, they were always different, but they were more and more, I would get closer and closer and closer and be stopped. And then in the summer, uh, so then the musicians went on strike. The Metropolitan Opera Orchestra went on strike. And while that was all, before that had happened, though, somewhere along the line, there was a Canadian violinist who was murdered and found dead in between Act 1 and Act 2 of a performance at the bottom of the elevator shaft outside the design office. And I thought, okay, this isn't, and it's not an omen. It's not an omen that the Canadian violinist has been murdered. But um, anyway things went from bad to worse. And, uh, the day that my parents were giving me a kind of a going away dinner because I was going to move to New York, uh, the following Monday, uh, was the day the Met announced that if they didn't solve the musician's strike by Monday, they were going to cancel the season. And on the Monday they canceled the season. And so I had no plan. And, uh, that it was two weeks after that, I threw my back out and I was lying in bed, uh, with everything I owned in boxes and no jobs and no future. And then Susan Benson called me up and said, would I like to come to Stratford to assist Desmond? So when I went in 81, that was, that was what, I guess that was how that happened because I wasn't going to be in New York. And then, so back to your original question, David Rappa. So once I finally got there, because I'd kind of invented this position and because New York's heavily unionized, there were a lot of things I couldn't do. And there were a lot of, David, I think he didn't really quite know what to do with me. Uh, and so it took quite a long time, I would say months, uh, for me to kind of settle in and... His, his official assistant, Michael Deegan, you know, would try to kind of figure out things for me to do. So, you know, uh, but what was great was in that design office, I got to see uh, work from designers from all over the world. Uh, David, I learned a huge amount about technical drawing from him. Uh, I got to see opera performances all the time whenever I wanted to. Uh, I got to watch the scenic artists who were working at that time. The paint floor was right outside the design office, so I could see them working on drops. And uh, at that point, also uh, at Lincoln Center, the wardrobe, like a lot was still being done at Lincoln Center. So uh, I could see a lot uh, in production. Uh, so it was a terrific learning opportunity. And I think David uh, taught me an awful lot about how to communicate an idea on paper. Right. As a designer, uh, this is one question that I've been really interested in. Um, as a designer, you're not necessarily a fine artist. Mm -hmm. you're, you're something in between an artisan who makes 
objects and an artist who sort of works independently. So how would you describe how would you describe your role as a designer and what is your purpose? Like you're you're not there. You have to work inside this larger structure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you how do you describe yourself as a designer then as as opposed to an artist or an artisan or like what is it what is the what is the point of being a designer? Well, for me, uh, because I think I spent all that time around factory, uh, I and because when I went to school in England, uh, there was a huge emphasis on text-based work. And uh, certainly in England, you know, there was a strong relationship to the Royal Court Theatre at that time, which was, you know, a place, a writer's theatre. Uh, so I certainly had it, uh, grilled into me that text was really important and that your job was to serve the text. Um, you know, I think that if it depends on what you're doing, if you're designing dance, that's different than if you're designing opera, which is different than if you're designing plays. So, you know, I think the important thing is you've got to look at what is the form that you're working in and then what do you bring to that? I think my role is to provide a a context within which the story can unfold in whatever way it is. And that in a way, today I was actually in a costume fitting with someone and I, it sort of hit me that my job was like being a visual writer, like that just by the choice of clothes and I think it was because one of the actors was talking about how the costume gave them their character and they didn't have to do any work um and they're just clothes they're just clothes you know they're this isn't a show that's you know big extravagant costumes but in deciding in making decisions about what people look like in making decisions about what they're standing in front of or what they're standing on top of or how they move because that's very important to me too. How do they move through space? How does that affect the rhythm of the play? Um, All of the things that you do in shaping the architecture of the space and the the stage pictures that your work creates, I think are, uh, they help to hopefully drive a narrative. And so I guess that's my, I think that's my job is to figure out those puzzle pieces and how they fit together so that the performers can do their job in a way that seems inevitable, but they're not fighting against a a geography I've given them where they're, whatever they look like and however they're moving is appropriate to what the form is of that particular piece. Right. And how, um, I mean, set design these days, and I imagine... This has always been the way. It's a it's a bit of a big, big build. There's mm-hmm. a lot of work that has to go into it. So how do you uh, balance between making those decisions six months ago in some of the larger theaters cases um, and responding to the actor's needs, which are only four or six weeks out from mm-hmm. the opening mm-hmm. night? How do you find a balance between being flexible? How do you negotiate with the theater to have that opportunity to change mm-hmm. things? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of that depends, A, what the material is that you're doing, B, what the, who the director is you're working with, uh, and uh, I always try to make sure that, well, first of all, if you're doing something that is, for instance, uh, a, a literal set, a set with doors and walls and windows and 
things like that, a room of some kind, uh, where you position the door, where you position the windows, where you position all of those things is going to have a profound impact that you can't change once you commit to. So I, if I'm in a situation where that seems to be what's called for, I, I really go through where I think actors need to be at particular times in the play, where on stage is the best place for them to be to say that line. And I, I think a lot about that. And sometimes, uh, when I put ideas out to directors, they, you know, they may or may not go, Oh, okay. But I know a good example. I did a production of Cat in a Hot Tin Roof with Eric Steiner at theater New Brunswick a million years ago. And, um, we started out designing, uh, with a ground plan where everything was facing straight on. And then partway through, I thought this is going to screw us up later on. So before we even got going, I said, Eric, I think we have to change it onto a diagonal and here's why. And it had to do with just the positioning of destinations and we changed it. And what was really wonderful was that uh, Dougie Campbell was playing Big Daddy, and I think he said to me, he didn't. I didn't hear this firsthand. I think he said it, to Eric. But my memory of it is that he said, you know, no matter what I do, I always end up being in the space I in the place I want to be on stage when it's time for me to talk. And I thought, well, that that wasn't an accident. Um, so I think because if you're thinking of the performers and where you think they need to be to deliver lines, then you can provide those locations for them. If you're doing a play, like for instance, working with Jill Kylie, totally opposite end of the spectrum on something like Oil and Water, I said, okay, lots of different scenes, lots of different locations, lots of different time periods. I'm going to provide a structure or a convention which will give her opportunity to make stuff up in rehearsal with the cast. So that became a show about planks and buckets and a ladder or three ladders. And you know, if you, if you, if you sort of can commit to that as an idea, you can do a million different things with him. So you're building in flexibility from the get go because a particular project is going to require it. So I think for me, that's the key decision at, you know, early on is, is, is what are the destinations you need for actors and do you need to create an environment where they can play in rehearsal and change everything around? Or do you need to create an environment that is, is more specifically locked in? Mm -hmm. Um, I remember reading, um, Robert Evan Jones, one of his design treaties or one of his books who said that a, a set should look empty. With mm -hmm. an out, an actor on it, yeah. and which was a pretty profound thing for me to read mm -hmm. at the time. I thought, well, and and the reason it was profound for me was because as a designer, you are, you are sort of continually battling your own ego with, mm -hmm. I think this is pretty. Mm -hmm. With what does the script need? Right. And how how have you how have you managed with that struggle? And is there anything in your training that uh, prepared you for that? And over the years, have you ever had to sort of suppress that what is beautiful and what is appropriate? Well, you know, I couldn't care less about it being beautiful for starters. That's boring to me. Like it's not that there, if, if, if what's required is something beautiful, then that's one thing. But to me, it's a puzzle and it's solving the puzzle. So the puzzle could be an ugly puzzle. 
It could be a complicated puzzle. It could be a simple puzzle. The reward is in thinking, did I design the puzzle right? So that when the performers are doing what they do, you can't tell where one thing starts and another thing ends. You can't tell, uh, uh, nothing, nothing that, that a perform from the time an audience member comes into the theater and sits down the, as soon as they sit down, they're looking at something, even if it's a curtain or they're looking at a set, they're looking at something from the minute they come in there, they're making assumptions about what's going to happen. And I think if I've done my job, right. What I will have done is provided uh, the opportunity for performers to be the ones that lead the audience through the piece from the beginning to the end. I will not have undermined their job by giving them a floor plan that is compromising their ability to play scenes. Um, I, 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 I won't just make it about pretty wallpaper because I don't care about pretty wallpaper, but if pretty wallpaper is required, that it'll be pretty wallpaper that's pretty, but not so pretty that it pulls focus. Um, and so I think because I find that the challenge, uh, I don't, uh, I don't have the fight about it's all about my set or it's all about my costumes or why can't it be pink because I think it should be pink. I mean, I think to me, it is a collaborative medium and I don't want people to, I want them to have a whole experience where they don't pull at they, I, you know, if they come out humming the scenery, it just makes me cringe. Like I don't, I don't want to be that person. I want to be the person who's made them just have an amazing evening. And how, um, at the beginning, let's just step back to the beginning of the process. How do you uh, manage your relationship with the director? Like you've uh, worked with a number of directors for many, many years, and you have probably a shorthand mm. uh, with those people, but then you have to work with or choose to work with new directors or people who are or much less experienced than you are. So how do you manage that relationship? How do you find your way in? Uh, and how do you build a vocabulary about mm -hmm. the play? Well, okay, you know, the two, okay, if it's directors you've worked with before, yes, you do have a vocabulary. And you know their, you hopefully know their personality and their temperament a little bit. Um, and it also now, these days, a lot of it is impacted by how far away they are because so much work happens long distance and over Skype, and that's a very different way of working than if you're in the room together. So uh, if it's working with people I've worked with before, then you know you, you walk into the conversation with a certain amount of knowledge of uh, looking at why, looking at the material and looking at, you know, how you're going to walk down this path together. If it's someone I don't have a lot of experience working with, uh, then I, I want to find out what for them, what speaks to them about the material in the first place? Why do they want to do it? Uh, I also want to find out a little bit about what kind of theater they think is interesting. Um, and I think that as soon as you enter into that dialogue, you know, if you're paying attention, you can start to figure out fairly early on as you put things out in front of someone, 
whether or not they're resonating or not. Um, so you just kind of sniff your way through. And I know what I want to say too, that to me, one of the most exciting things about designing in the theater is not showing the audience everything. It's giving them the right clues so that they'll fill in the blanks themselves and that they will see what's not there because their imaginations will see it. And that, if I can do that and basically create an environment that evokes for them a much richer, more complicated, more complex picture, then then that's, that's actually really what I think is the most interesting thing to do. Because that's, I mean, that's why it's not film. I was going to say that it seems you trust your audience a lot. Well... Whereas in film, you have to make this hyper-realism or hyper-realistic picture because you're kind of, I don't know, you have a lot of control in film. And in theater, people can look anywhere, anytime. Yeah, you have to sort of say, yeah. look over here, look over here. Well, and also, you can control where you want them to look by how you use light, how you use color, how you use all, where you put the focus. Uh, but I think what theater does well is it allows us to see things that aren't there. Film will show us. Television will show us. Uh, so why do we keep in theater not trusting that ability? I, you know, I, I, I don't want to be shown. You know, I, I, I need to be. It needs to be suggested to me in the right way. I don't need to be beaten over the head and shown something. And I would much rather engage with my imagination, because if. I'm going to be moved by a performance in any way. It's because I've participated and I've participated because I've invested my own emotions in watching what's going on. Um, do you use any special tools or activities or uh, ways into the script for your own kind of purpose, like visualization, um, sketching, things like that? Like, How do you actually prepare um, your environment or what, what kind of tools do you use to visualize uh, the play? Well, um, you know, the first one is your eyes. You read it and you read it and you read it and you read it and you read it. I know for me very early on in the reading, I, I, I have to have a hard copy of it, even though I read scripts on my iPad, but I have to have an hard, co hard copy because I have to be able to make flags for each scene. I have to be able to just break it down and lay it out in a, as a physical object. Um, and when I make scene breakdowns, one of the things that I, like one of the things that I look at is uh, how long are the scenes? Is this a play with uh, long scenes? Is this a play with a bunch of short scenes? How many pages are there? Uh, because that'll tell me something about the rhythm of the movement. Uh, so I tend to do a scene breakdown fairly early on so I can just chart that stuff out and, and have it and then kind of ignore it for a bit. But even the boring things like, okay, there's seven scenes in this location and three scenes in that location and one scene in this other location. Well, you know, if there's only one scene in the other location and it's two pages long, I'm certainly not going to invest real estate in creating a space just for that scene, you know? Uh, so just looking at the breakdown and looking at, you know, the number of pages in a scene, that kind of stuff right away can, can be a help 
to me. Um, I storyboard out with little stick figures uh, so that I can figure out where, if they're saying those lines, where's the best place for them to be on the stage? Are they upstage, downstage? Are they are there are there ten people on stage? Is there one person on stage? And that I think helps me a lot in getting a sense of okay, what is the rhythm of movement that has to happen in this particular piece? Some plays are are like furniture plays where it's a lot of sitting and talking and moving around. Okay, so if you're sitting and talking, what kind of chairs are they, and what can you do with those chairs? Can you sit on them? Can you sit in the backs? Can you lean on them? Do they, you know, like I love solving the puzzle of what's the right kind of furniture. Because you can do so much if you make the right choices and you can be undermined so easily if you make the wrong choices. Is it a round table or a rectangular table? Um, So I also have a huge pile of little drawers with old model furniture. So for me, once I've made a model box of the theater, I start throwing things into that model box that I know I have to have. I, you know, I, you cannot do this play if you do not have levels or you cannot do this play if you don't have, you know, a, a, a door or you don't have a bed or you don't, whatever it is, because I've got so much stuff in my pie, my stockpile, I can just throw those things in to a model box and play around with mass in a very broad way. Uh, so this is not about, it looks like this, this is not about color. It's just about how volume, how much space does it take up when you've got a a couch and a coffee table and where are the people? And I make little people uh, because I really believe you have to have little people all the time or else, or else terrible things will happen. Um, so I certainly do that. I, you know, I, I sort of fiddle and sketch. I go, I look for lots of images. I tend to get lots of reference images. You know, the internet is of course amazing for that now, but also magazines. Also sometimes I was working on a project not that long ago where I I was getting nowhere and I was just thinking, I can't do it. I can't do it. Oh, I can't, I gotta, you know, and I was really considering whether I should actually leave the project uh, at that point for various reasons. And I said to myself, okay, I'm going to give you one day to make up your mind about whether you think you can carry through with this. And when you walk out the door today of your house, go out with an open spirit, just go out and be open. And I walked to the end of my street and literally at the end of my street, I saw something on the sidewalk that triggered an idea, that triggered an idea, that became the idea of what we ended up with on stage. So cell phones are great because there's cameras. So I just, you know, I just kind of saw something and took lots of pictures. And, but what, it was really interesting to me because I, I had just said to myself, just walk out the door and let yourself be open. And that was an extraordinary tool in a way to just stop closing myself off. So I think I'm going to hang on to that one. That's good. Um, and I, I need to work three-dimensionally. Um, I, I was trained by, uh, Hayden Griffin, who is an obsessively good detailed model builder. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not, Franco Zeffirelli, you know, he can do amazing renderings and the set will end up looking like the amazing renderings. 
and you know David Repa at the Met it was David's job to build the models and realize it 3D but I, I just kept thinking how can Zeffirelli know that that illustration he's done that paint he's a wonderful painter that that painting is going to turn into that set um, so I need to kind of work more like it's a bit of sculpture right um, how do you communicate those ideas properly to the artisans who are going to be making the material? So, for example, if you have to um, have furniture built, uh, it's pretty easy to, I would, I'm, this is a lighting designer talking, it's pretty easy to uh, create a drawing with uh, pictures of the legs and the top and the, you know, all the different angles to sort of build that table. But when you're talking to a scenic artist, for example, when you're painting a large drop from your model box, which is much smaller scale how do you communicate these ideas uh so they so they render mm-hmm. well in the in the artisans i house? had a very interesting experience not that long ago where uh i was taking in i made a one inch scale model of a piece that had to be built and i made a one inch scale model because uh it i thought it was going to be better in terms of illustrating the idea And I also did some front paint elevations. There were a series of these, they were all duplicates. I did some front paint elevations of what I thought they should look like. And I also took in a whole bunch of reference images uh, from a painter whose work I admired. And I said, okay, this painter has the spirit of what I think should be on these pieces. And you don't have to be literal. This is not about interpreting it or about reproducing it. I've given you an elevation that gives you the overall, uh, but the spirit of these paintings is there's a clue here. And I was amazed at how much the painter said they had, they had helped him. So I think, uh, the most important thing is, you know, the, the communication tools, are whatever they need to be to make it clear. And so usually when I go in to talk to anybody, I mean, I usually have lots of reference one way or another. Uh, I tr- I, I, people seem to like my technical drawings, um, which I still do with pencil, uh, but which, you know, David Repa did beautiful technical drawings and I, I love them because they were pieces of art and so I think I that influenced the way I draw a lot. Uh, so that's one thing I try to do accurate models. Uh, I, you know, I think if I find anything uh, that I think will help inform, I could say this cookie on the table here that we're looking at, this cookie has the right quality. If I think that it's got something to speak to you, then I'll give you the cookie uh, because you can't always articulate those things but sometimes if I show you the cookie you're going to look at it and and what it's going to tell you is a whole lot about what it's not and by a process of elimination it's already going to put you into a a kind of a framework where you can move forward so I think the more we can give any of the people we work with in any capacity different kinds of clues they all add up so in um, in many ways, it sounds like you're you're also building a trust relationship with the artisans building your set. Like you have to have it's a collaborative effort. It's, it's totally, not just a, a totally a reiteration of your ideas. And sometimes I love it when I'm working with craftspeople who will do better, will do something better than I could ever hope to do it. 
because my job is to sort of say, okay, here's, here's what we want. Your job is to, is to bring it to life. So, you know, I know, I know you're a better painter. I know you're a better carpenter. I know you're a better cutter. I know, I, I, I love that because then those people always bring things that you never could have imagined and it just makes it richer. Now, of course, the other problem, problem, challenge when you're designing a place that you have to work within a budget. Mm -hmm. How do you know that the thing you've designed is going to fit that budget? You don't always. Sometimes, uh, regularly, happened very recently, in fact, often, you know, you. I think it's important when you're designing, I think you have to, when you're doing the thinking, you have to pretend you have all the money in the world. Because when I was at the Met in the early 80s, a new production then cost $3 million. And they always said it's not enough money. So there's never enough money. Okay, let's just get that out. Um, so once you accept that, then you have to think about what you think should happen without worrying about the budget once you get feedback on the budget reality through costings and things like that, then I think it's your job to be able to either decide if something is so critical that you have to have it. And so you have to go fight for more money or often, more often to me, what happens is that you have to say, okay, what is the intention behind these ideas and how do I maintain the intention if I have to simplify. And I think often when you're in that position, you actually end up with something better. Terrific. All right. So in the last little bit here, I want to talk about two things. One is uh, you work as an associate professor at York University. Mm -hmm. So you're treating, you're training, treating, you're training mm -hmm. uh, sort of the next generation of artists, mm -hmm. of theater artists. Um, how do you, we're, we're in a period right now, and I think we have been in period, you know, periodically throughout the last 30 years where, you know, money comes and goes mm -hmm. and jobs come and go mm -hmm. and the number of productions come and go. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you manage the expectations of the students that come to you for training or how do you prepare them to be in that environment? Or do you even have to? Like, are they committed? Once they get to the university level, are they committed and that is it? Or uh, like, what do you, how do you prepare them to be in that mm -hmm. kind of uncertain? Well, I think that first off, you have to be honest with them and you have to recognize that uh, many of them are probably not going to be interested in being designers anyway. They, they may be interested in learning about it. Uh, and some of them will be. Um, I certainly try to be very upfront about the instability of it as a, as a, as a line of work, uh, about the challenges about it. Uh, you know, you have to, to, to make a living as a second costume designer, uh, you have to be on the road a lot. Uh, you have to be always doing multiple projects at the same time. Uh, nobody cares how late you had to stay up to get your prelims done. Uh, and you're, you know, generally underpaid. So, uh, it's hard. Uh, and so I, I, I don't make any bones about that. Um, I do say to them, if you, if you really want to do this kind of work, it can be tremendously rewarding. Uh, and now you have to work really hard. Um, and so it's really up to them, uh, you know, what they, 
how they how they pursue their own futures in their own lives. I mean, I think, you know, regardless of what you're teaching, if you're teaching theater in any capacity in theater, it is, it is a constantly changing, shifting environment. There are some jobs where you can be, you know, say, uh, the house, the house technicians, you can be someone attached to a company. Designers aren't attached to companies. They're, they're like actors. They're, they're generally hired per project. Um, so don't go into it if you're not going to be able to be interested in that part of it. Uh, and, and certainly out of, over the years, you know, there are some students that I've had who I, I work with a lot of, ex-students professionally now and I love that some of them are designing some of them are stage managing some of them are production they're doing all kinds of different things and uh you know there's other ex-students I've got who've gone on to do totally different things that have been as interesting but in totally different fields and when I ask them if their theater training was important or valuable across the board they've always said yes it was really critical um so in terms of working with students, I think the important thing is to say to them, regardless of what you do with your life, there are skills that you will learn in doing this work that are totally transferable. And so let's get on with it. Terrific. And then one final question, of course. Now, you have you have a 40-year-plus uh, spanning career. Um, and you, what has changed since the 1970s of the cold, unheated costume department at the factory <laughs> theater or or that uh, that that world war ii time capsule that you worked in down at blythe to today is it um how has has canadian theater is canadian theater now uh an important you know has it come into its own yet you know i i think that's i don't know how to answer that question because i think that uh Things go in cycles in terms of whether there's exciting work being done or, you know, less exciting work being done. Um, obviously, there is a, a sort of a theater industry uh, which didn't really exist before. I mean, you know, certainly in some books that I've read too about what it was like, you know, being an actor at the CBC in the, you know, with CBC radio, starting with radio and then moving into television and stuff. I mean, um, Vern Chapman wrote a wonderful book uh, that was this, I think it was the anecdotal history of theater in Canada or something. Anyway, you know, when you read his stories about just trying to get work as a professional actor, uh, well, well, people work as professional actors now. You know, that's not in question. A lot of people don't work. There's not that much work to go around. Uh, but there is, you know, there is work that is being done that employs people. Uh, so that's a big difference. I think that at the same time, uh, what makes people want to go to the theater has changed hugely. And how you get people to come to the theater is, is a different kind of, it's a different kind of challenge than it was maybe 30 years ago. So it's, uh, and I can safely say, there's a lot of times when I sort of ask myself what Canadian theater is at the moment. I think, I don't know. Like, I feel like a lot is shifting 
we've got all kinds of technology that we didn't have before. Um, there's all kinds of people who want to be involved in making theater. Uh, you know, there's theater programs across the country, all over the place in schools. And in all honesty, there are times when I think, are we, should we really be doing this? Like, are we really training people where there's not going to be enough opportunities for them? I don't know, you know, and, and then I have the conversation with myself where I say, but these are all transferable skills and it's still good to learn this. So, you know, I, I have a lot of questions myself. Um, I just, I suppose I just keep thinking as long as I've got some interesting projects to work on, then it's okay. (laughs) Which is probably what we all want to do. We all want to have interesting projects to work on. Okay, well, thank you very much, Sean, for joining me on the title block. That was terrific. Okay, it's a pleasure. I'll see you at last. And that was set designer Sean Kerwin speaking to me from her home in Toronto. Next time I talk with designer Alan Stitchbury from Victoria, B.C., so join me then. The music for this podcast is Podsafe Music from the 1990s called See You By The Light. You can find them at roughtraderecords.com forward slash the 1990s. Please go to iTunes to give us a review. It'll help us get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the title block CA and on facebook.com forward slash the title block podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the title block at gmail.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you try to convince the producer that no, $50 for Jail and Gobos will not be enough for the community production of Aida at the local hockey arena. I'm Michael Cruz, and I will see you next time on The Title Block. <laughs>